In my seventh month of pregnancy, the muscles in my back parted like a curtain. One morning, I could not get out of bed, and when Les finally helped me up, every step I took was difficult. Coincidentally, my appointment at the hospital was due that day, and I tottered in to see the head of the clinic like some arthritic 85-year-old woman. "'What's happened to you?' he asked. "'I'm falling apart,' I replied. "'This happens sometimes with two pregnancies so close together. "'Your poor old back probably hasn't recovered from the first one. "'Did you have problems last time?' "'I've never had a back problem in my life,' I said. "'Several hours later, I emerged from the hospital "'with a kind of weightlifter's belt, "'velcroed low on my stomach beneath the great mass of baby.' The hospital physiotherapist had measured me too for a kind of pregnancy corset, a stretchy elastic garment intended to hold everything together. The head of the clinic agreed with the other doctor on his staff. I can see your specialist point of view about a caesarean, he said, but in my opinion that's being overly cautious. I think in your case, if there's an elective episiotomy, there shouldn't be any problems. So if you control the possibility of another third-degree tear, everything should be okay, is that right? Look, he said, putting a special red sticker on my medical history. I'll write it all up in the notes that you're to have an elective episiotomy. They'll know all about you the moment you walk in the door. I looked at him uncertainly. And you have full confidence that a vaginal delivery is the best way to go. He smiled. Yes. He was a highly regarded obstetrician, He was the second doctor who thought I should be delivered vaginally. I was also trying to make an informed decision, but I had to admit I was also a layperson who did not have a medical degree. I guess I'll just have to have confidence in your confidence then, I said. I wondered why I didn't feel any. As the year came to a close... A race of sorts began between the baby and my 40th birthday. I was due to turn 40 on December 30. I wondered if the baby would arrive while I was still 39, or perhaps even turn up as a birthday present. Just before Christmas, a woman I had previously known in a professional capacity as a book editor invited me to her book group's Christmas dinner. I didn't know anyone, but Marianne made me feel welcome and by the time I drove home at the end of the night, I was exhilarated. Here was a group of women with whom I could be friends. As the sun was going down on the evening of January 8, 1997, I felt a few painless contractions. They were nothing like I had experienced with Caspar, and I was not even sure I was in labour. We had arranged with Katrina, a new friend from across the courtyard, to stay with Casper if needed until Tracy came. Our mothers were best friends and Tracy was my closest thing to family. Katrina wasn't home and when I rang Tracy she said she'd come as soon as she could. I left a message on Katrina's answer phone. Les came home and made us both a cup of herbal tea. As I sat on the couch drinking tea in my thin summer dress the tightenings went on. When my belly was gripped by one, I could see the shape of the baby. I felt no pain. With my hands, I cupped my baby. That is to say, I cupped myself. I was at once both vessel and cargo. One, yet also two. 
Katrina arrived at the same time as Tracy. What's happening? They both asked together. I'm still not sure, I said, and Tracy came over to have a feel. Feels like a contraction to me, she said. Why don't you go up to the hospital anyway? At the hospital, as we were getting out of the car, I felt the first painful contraction. I doubled over on the pavement. My name's Susan Johnson, I said to the admissions nurse calmly. I'm having my second baby. Here's my card. I should have screamed, My name's Susan Johnson and I've got a recto-vaginal fistula. I need a caesarean now. I didn't, of course. I thought they would know all about me from my medical records, those medical records with the large, reassuring red dot. I am the type of person whose first instinct is to trust authority. These days, I test every supposed truth I come across. Up on the labour ward, I was placed in a small anteroom to await developments. Straight away, I became obsessed with getting onto the TENS equipment. A popular form of pain relief in Sweden, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation works by interrupting pain transmission via a small electric current transmitted through a series of electrodes stuck on your lower back. I knew it was vital to get hooked up before contractions became too intense. We'll see about your tens after the midwife has seen you, said the nurse. I got up off the bed and began to walk around the room. Already I had forgotten that I should be telling everyone about the fistula, about the elective episiotomy. All I could think about was getting hooked up to the tens equipment we had hired in advance and away from the pain that had invaded me. Where is it, Les? Can you go and see if it's coming, I begged, between pains? Suddenly the midwife was there and I was back on the bed and the electrodes were stuck onto my lower back and the control device was in my hand. I turned it up to full blast. It's not working, I said, beginning to cry and the contractions went from 15 minutes apart to four minutes, then two and were quickly becoming unbearable. We'd better get to the delivery room, the midwife said and I looked into her eyes long enough to register that I liked her face. In the new room, I was being held up under the arms by Les, when suddenly a giant fist punched straight up my vagina, impaling me, skewering me to my own pain. I thought to myself, I've gone mad, and heard my own voice begin to wail, my own voice crying out for an epidural, for more gas, for God. And I heard Les saying, Susan, look at me. Susan, breathe. And miraculously, I did. I was helped to the bed, and a young doctor asked if I was to have an elective episiotomy, and I said yes, and I lay waiting for the slice of the knife, holding on to the midwife's hand, prepared to follow her to my own death. She was guiding my child out of me, and I could feel my body giving him up. And then he was born... And straight away, I wanted to do it again. He was wet and dark, and I knew him at once, and held him to me, and cried. He was bigger than Caspar, 4.4 kilograms, but how curly was my new son's tongue. How warm his frog-legged huddle. For a moment, I knew again that this was the essence of being. 
This moment, this beating of blood, this tiny pulse, this glorious now. It was five past one on the 9th of January. Dwelling in all that glory, I forgot to ask why they hadn't done the episiotomy. Unbelievably, all through the labour, both Les and I had forgotten to remind them about the fistula, and as my tears dried, it became apparent that I had suffered another bad third-degree tear, torn again down to the anal sphincter muscle. A sudden flurry of discussions took place. The specialist on call that night was paged for his opinion while I waited, bleeding, on the bed. Finally, another young doctor came in to talk to me. The doctor thinks we should do a temporary repair now and leave the final repair of the fistula till later. There's a lot of bleeding and swelling around the area now. Les and I looked at each other. What do you think? I asked him. I'll leave you to have a talk, the young doctor said. But we'd better get you stitched up, at least temporarily. About 15 minutes later, my legs were up in stirrups, shaking uncontrollably, while the young doctor wielded her needle. The damage was, of course, already done. Now I will speak of this. In wrenching back childbirth from the hands of the mostly male doctors, in telling ourselves that our bodies instinctively know how to do it and that male doctors with their forceps and fondness for caesareans are the enemy of all birthing women, we forget that birth involves danger, the loud, hot breath of the wolf. Instead, we blocked our ears and invented for ourselves a kind of earth mother hierarchy, feeling ashamed, disappointed or even like failures if we resorted to pain relief or ended up with an emergency caesarean after being cheated of a vaginal delivery. We turned the experience of birth into our own private movie, casting ourselves in the starring role. In truth, we have turned our faces away from the fact that at every birth, death hovers about the room, the silent presence. We do not wish to remember that babies die, strangled in their own cords, only minutes from light. Nor do we wish to dwell on the fact that women still bleed to death in distant rooms where there is no recourse to drugs designed to stop hemorrhaging. In most first world countries, death is quickly ushered from the room. But even in your clean, laundered bed, you will still feel the rush of air against your skin as he passes. Even if your baby is delivered to you safe and whole, and your own body signs are still vital, you will not escape the faint brush of death's wing. Forget him at your peril. Mother, salute him. The morning after Elliot's birth, another young doctor came to see me. By then, I was already worried about the effect of another bad tear on the fistula, angry that I hadn't had the promised episiotomy, and distressed about what was going to happen next. The young doctor implied that there had been mismanagement. They couldn't read the notes. Look, I'll arrange to get you on the operating list for the fistula repair. She leaned closer. Confidentially, you can make a complaint. This sort of thing shouldn't happen. I know the doctor's angry that his instructions weren't carried out. Elliot whimpered, and I picked him up. He promised me several times that everything would be written up in the notes. A nurse came into the room, and the young doctor got up. As I said, I'll see if I can get you onto the operating list. 
Thanks, I replied. As I laid Elliot down in his cot, a rush of air escaped from my vagina. Later that day, the kindly midwife came to see me. I'm really sorry. It was a well-controlled delivery, and there didn't seem the need for an episiotomy. She said that doctors' written notes often couldn't be deciphered. On the third day after Elliot's birth, Les came to pick us up from the hospital. If Casper was a kind of language I had to learn, Elliot was an alphabet. From the first, he seemed familiar to me. Flesh of my flesh, a recognisable member of my tribe. I found I instinctively knew what he longed for most, and whenever I picked him up, he soon ceased crying. It wasn't just that he looked like me, but that I seemed able to intuitively meet his needs, and therefore, reluctant as I am to admit it, he also met mine. I was so clearly his source of nourishment and comfort that I finally began to have some confidence in my ability to mother. I felt rewarded. From the minute we got him home, he slept for long, uninterrupted blocks of time, giving me the chance to attend to other pressing things in my life besides him. He also fed effortlessly so that my breasts were always full of milk, and whenever he was awake, he seldom cried. If I had been worried about how Casper would react to being usurped, I needn't have. For the first few weeks, at least, Casper didn't take much notice at all of Elliot. Only when I was breastfeeding did he show any signs of jealousy, sometimes trying to pull Elliot's mouth away from the nipple. I quickly learnt to have a pile of books and toys next to me where Casper could sit beside us and play. The fact that Casper had always been close to Les helped enormously. After we came home from hospital, Les took a fortnight off, effectively taking up the slack. And together, he and Casper went out on long walks to parks and cafes. (laughs) 